Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. If you have your Bible, let's open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. A couple of weeks ago, we covered the first half of the 11th chapter, and we'll be picking up at verse 17 this morning in the second half of this 11th chapter. And so by way of quick recap, after pointing out how head coverings or veils blurred what should have been a clear distinction between pagan and Christian worship practices, Paul now turns to another issue, it's the issue of the Lord's Supper. Since the beginning of the church, it was customary for the believers to come together and to eat together, as we see in Acts chapter 2. It was an opportunity for fellowship and for sharing with those who, who were less privileged. No doubt they topped this meal off by observing the Lord's Supper. They called this meal, as some of you are aware of, the love feast, since its main emphasis was showing love for the saints by sharing with one another. Paul certainly, in his time at Corinth for those 18 months, would have no doubt established this ordinance within the church at Corinth as part of their, as part of their worship. The love feast in the early church looked a lot like our potlucks today. <laughs> but it functioned more like an offering on behalf of the poor. The wealthy would either host or provide food and drink um, from their abundance, while those with little, if or anything at all, would, would try to bring what they could. Typically, however, the needy would come empty-handed, but leave with their stomachs filled, which was the purpose initially of the love feast of the body of Christ coming together and sharing with one another. So the love feast functioned as more than just a fellowship meal. It included that, certainly, Christian fellowship, but it also involved compassion, provision for those who were in need. Now, as part of the fellowship of the church, as we've kind of already mentioned, within the church community, the leader of the gathering would call attention to the bread, to the cup, to the elements, and using those elements as a visible, tangible representation of the physical body, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were not saying that those actual elements somehow mystically became the actual body and blood of Jesus. They represented those things. They were symbolic of them. More than just a memorial, it was an expression of genuine fellowship as believers gathered to share, to sing like we have just done, and enjoy their time together. But here's the deal. With all barriers down, all social status ignored, and all relational bonds strengthened. Authentic unity 
was to be evident not only through their words, but also through their actions and through their behavior, their attitudes with one another. God intended that as believers came together for a church worship service, physically hungry and thirsty, spiritually hungry and thirsty, that they would leave physically and spiritually satisfied and fulfilled, having had meaningful fellowship with the Savior through genuine fellowship with his body, the church. However, if there was ever a way for the church at Corinth to mess something up, they would certainly find a way, and they had. Some serious abuses had crept in. And as a result, the love feasts, as we're going to be reading here in a moment, were doing more harm than good in the church. So consider this imagery with me, okay? Every single one of us have seen on TV or in a movie a courtroom setting, right? And, and then we've seen where maybe something is said, something happens, and it causes a serious disruption throughout the courtroom. And it just, it's chaotic. And all of a sudden, the judge picks up his gavel, pounds the bench two or three times, and yells out, order in the court, right? We've all seen that. I want you to picture that that's what Paul's doing here. <laughs> he kind of is in a particular kind of ways, picked up his gavel, pounded the bench, and is saying not so much order in the court, but order at the table. The table of the Lord is what is going on here. This is what he's basically doing, laying down some biblical directives as he's saying, let's get this back to how it's supposed to be. Let's get this back to where it is honoring Jesus Christ and honoring one another as members of the body of Christ. And so he begins with, Something he has already addressed way back in chapter 1. He starts with talking about divisions that existed within the church at Corinth. Look at verse 17. It says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Oh, my goodness. What a slap in the face. <laughs> I mean, I would feel pretty much bad about if Jesus walked here and said, you know what? Your meetings there at Wellspring, they're doing more harm than they are good. Wouldn't that be terrible? And that's what he is saying here to these folks. Back in verse 2 of this 11th chapter, some of you will remember that Paul praised some of them for that, that they were following his example in the teachings that he had passed on to them. But now, no, <laughs> you're doing more harm than good. There was no orderliness in the ordinances. They were practicing some really bad table manners. The union part of communion was tragically missing. Let's read on, verse 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. 
Paul begins by in the first place. How many of you started a lively conversation that way? Well, in the first place, what's interesting here is that Paul never moves on to a second or third place. <laughs> it's just the first place. I think what we are intended to get from that then is this. The most important way that this is true, your disorderliness at the table of the Lord is, and then he describes the problem. The problem Paul mentions with regard to communion, again, being the same problem he addressed earlier, the cliques that existed within the church. Even at the Lord's table, the Corinthian church was splintered into these divisive groups, these divisive cliques, if you will. The Corinthians, if we, you know, it's hard to believe, but then it isn't because we have the same capabilities, don't we? They had so corrupted one of the most sacred events in Christian worship. We're talking about communion. They had pretty much messed that up. They were not giving proper honor, honor to Jesus, nor were they giving proper honor to one another. In verse 19, Paul is not giving his approval for divisions. It might kind of read that way, but that is not what he is doing. It does, however, seem as though, while Paul condemned the selfish practice of cliques and divisions, he does make a comment about the result of those divisions, meaning at least God would use the cliques and divisions that existed, that God would use them to reveal those who were true, mature believers. Perhaps maybe even referring back to those that he is thinking about in verse 2, whom he does praise for following his example and the Lord's example and the teaching that he had passed on. Paul knows that this side of heaven, consistent, perfect unity in any local body isn't very likely. Why? Because not everybody is going to exhibit the same level of maturity, right? Divisions caused by prideful, selfish members would make evident this is what I think Paul is pointing to, would make evident the holy, the spiritual, the humble believers who did have God's approval. It's my personal opinion that we are once again seeing Paul utilizing what we have referred to before as holy sarcasm. <laughs> because I think he, what he's kind of doing is probably saying you who are wealthy and well-to-do, you probably think you are the ones who have God's approval just because. And he's saying, no, not so much, because you are the ones who are abusing the Lord's table, as we're going to see that being developed here. Even though Paul realizes the unlikeliness of perfect unity, he is also very aware that the mess cannot be left unaddressed. The whole congregation seems to have been threatened with fracture and disorder and chaos. Paul knows that something has to be done. Verse 20, So then, when you come together, 
It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What will I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Paul says, you might be calling it the Lord's Supper. I got news for you, not even close. But some in the church had not had lost the had lost the corporate aspect of the love feast. They had somehow lost its main purpose and what it was supposed to do and accomplish. They lost that corporate aspect of it and had come to focus mainly on themselves. And let me just pause for a moment. Isn't it interesting that here we are in the 11th chapter of this letter and we still have not moved away from this issue with it being all about me. This problem with getting over ourselves. We just cannot ever seem to get away from that. Have you noticed that? From, from the very beginning of this letter, that just keeps showing up. And here it is again. It's like Paul is in such dismay over the behavior of the Corinthians that when they come together, they're not really even interested seemingly in the Lord's Supper. They eat without waiting on others and whatever it is that they brought that was supposed to be shared, they're, they're being stingy with it and eating it for themselves and not sharing with those who it needed to be shared with. Therefore, he says, one is hungry while others get drunk. Scholars suggest that Paul is using hyperbole here. I certainly hope so. That he's intentionally exaggerating. That not maybe not really getting drunk, but he is bringing to a point by this exaggeration that they were so out of line that they were be, had become increasingly excessive in their gluttony and in their ignoring the down and out, the needy who was in their meeting as well. It's almost like Paul is saying, you might as well just go ahead and drink it all up and get drunk because it's so bad in what you're doing. At the fellowship meal, like our potluck dinners today, the Corinthians brought food that was supposed to be shared. However, the well-to-do ate and drank up everything, not waiting for or sharing with others. The others would have been, from the wealthy's viewpoint, the riffraff, the poor, the down and out who may not have had a decent meal all week long, would be left, if any, if, hopefully, with the scraps. So we're talking about, as I've already just mentioned, a total lack of concern, a total lack of compassion, a total lack 
of grace and mercy and God's love coupled with the excessive gluttony I just previously mentioned. Paul is expressing his concern here about social distinctions that destroy the very meaning of communion and the unity of what is supposed to exist within the Christ community. By asking those who abuse the poor, did you see that? If they despised the very church of God. The church consists of those people gathered out of the world because God has called them, because they belong to God. They are his special, as we are his special prized people from all walks of life. From every race, color, or creed. And so when some believers disrespect other believers in this way, not only are they dishonoring those who belong to God, but are also dishonoring the sanctity of the Lord's Supper, despising the church, despising the Lord himself. Now, please, as we move through this message today, I want you to understand that the principles of this isn't just pertaining to communion. Goes beyond that. Goes beyond our interaction, our attitudes, and our behavior towards one another. The picture I believe that we are to see in this passage is the extreme arrogance of the wealthy eating and drinking and partying it up. Well, the less fortunate, imagine this with me, had to endure the humiliation of that going on right in front of them. Watching the food and the drink being swallowed up, the rich getting fatter, the poor getting hungrier. During the Last Supper, the actual Last Supper, the original Last Supper, Jesus demonstrated the kind of selfless humility that he was expecting from his followers. You guys remember John 13? It says that he had gathered his disciples together to celebrate the Passover. We read there in John 13 that Jesus got up wrapped a towel around him, filled a basin with water, and began to wash the disciples' feet. A few verses later, he has finished that, and then he says to them, I have done this so that you have an example. I, as your Lord and your teacher, have humbled myself and cleaned your feet. I want you to do the same. The picture Humility. Not looking down our noses at others. Not maintaining unhealthy attitudes that dishonor others and dishonor our Lord and Savior. We're to follow that example. The selfless attitude and actions Jesus expressed during the original Last Supper look nothing at all like that in the Corinthian gathering. They looked more like a bunch of whining two-year-olds screaming 
mine. Isn't that what two-year-olds do? <laughs> Last week, our family was over, our grandkids, and the two-year-old, Reese, was on the couch, and he had a plate, paper plate with some food on his lap on our couch, and Dad kind of was retook it and was repositioning, you know, so to, to prevent an accident from happening. Soon as Brooke got the plate off of Reese's lap, Reese shouted out, Hey, that's mine! <laughs> and we were like, whoa. Never had he spoken clearer words. <laughs> the Corinthians' behavior is like that. Church, our behavior, when we are maintaining unhealthy, wrong, dishonoring attitudes and actions is no different. These guys were excessively gorging themselves. They had not learned nor followed the Lord's example of selfless humility. How about us? Have we? Have we? This leads to our next point. We are to be an expression of Christ's self-giving love. Look at verse 23 through 26 with me. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With regards to the Lord's Supper, they had not carried out the teaching that Paul had passed on to them. Their failure to hold to Paul's teaching was, I think, all the more tragic. And why would I say that? Because it wasn't something that Paul had come up with on, him, you know, on his own. That's what's so tragic about this. This Lord's Supper that they had so messed up and were abusing tragically wasn't just some idea that Paul had passed on to them. This was something that the Lord Jesus had actually done and had passed on to Paul himself, who was now passing it on to them. You see, the book of 1 Corinthians was written in A.D. 55. Why do I mention that? No gospel book had been written yet. So in other words, this is the very first occurrence of that Last Supper. Now, sure, later on, the apostles would write that into their, into their Gospels, Matthew, Mark. John doesn't, but Luke does as well. Luke is the only Gospel that includes the words, do this in remembrance of me. So we have really here the first record of the original Lord's Supper. Paul does not tell us how he received this knowledge. Maybe it, is, it came to him through supernatural revelation. 
Certainly possible. Maybe Jesus passed this on to him when Paul was on the road to Damascus. Remember that? When he encounters the Lord. Perhaps it was during the time that he had spent out in the Arabian desert. I think he was out there for like three years being prepared for a lifelong time of ministry. He talks about that in Galatians chapter 1. Or maybe even this was something that was recommunicated to him from one of the apostles who was actually there. In any case, we're not told how he receives the information, but we know it's good and reliable. Amen? So Paul describes in summary fashion the highlights of that Last Supper. The dark night, the night that he was betrayed, Judas would betray him. As I said, Jesus had gathered his disciples together to celebrate the traditional Jewish Passover meal. And at that meal, the Lord did something unexpected, something that completely broke from centuries tradition surrounding the Passover observance. After he took the bread, gave thanks, he broke it and then said something that had not been said before. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, while his disciples still pondered, I think, this sudden change in the traditional observance, Jesus took another new turn after the meal when he picked up the cup and said, as we read, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this so often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So it was a symbol of great significance. Keep in mind now, Corinth, totally messed this up, abusing it so badly. It was a symbol of great significance. It was a reminder to never forget. And it was a statement. What was the statement? Follow my example. Be willing to put others first. Put pride aside. Walk with me in humility. This is how you remember me. It isn't just going through the motions of partaking of the elements. It's living it. Living what? Living what they represent, which they were not doing, which therefore means then that we must carefully examine our own hearts on a regular basis, I would say. Verse 27. So often, so, so then, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why. Many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. To participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner has traditionally been interpreted to mean to participate while having some unconfessed sin in our lives. This may be due in part to a misinterpretation that in, understands the word unworthy as describing the sinner rather than the 
manner by which it is happening. Made even more evident, I believe, in verse 29. Without discerning the body of Christ. On the basis of this misinterpretation, many think that they are unworthy to partake of communion if they're struggling with a certain sin or wrestling with a particular temptation. That kind of reasoning, folks, would be like a doctor saying to a sick person, you go out and get well, then you come back and see me. Or a loan officer saying to a poor person, you need a loan? Great, go get some money, then come back and see me. Or a cook saying to someone who is hungry, starving? Well, gain a little weight, then come back and I'll cook you a little something to eat. The Lord's table is the very place for the person struggling with sin. Wrestling with temptation or caught up in self-seeking pleasure. It is at the Lord's table that we can say, thankfully, gratefully, Lord, I desperately need you in my life. I partake of these elements knowing that I am forgiven, thankful that I am forgiven. Thank you, Lord, and I celebrate what you have done for me. It is unfortunate that those who with the understanding, this misunderstanding, opt out of partaking in an amazing event in church intended to bring healing and wholeness because of a misunderstanding. To be sure, now I want to make sure that we are sure that Paul is not saying Hey, you don't need to worry about confession. No, that's not what he's saying. Oh, he's not saying don't concern yourself with preparing your heart and getting right with God before entering a worship service. That's not what he's saying. Obviously, you always want to be concerned about your heart being right. Amen? But in this particular case, he is speaking in a way more specific. The unworthiness he had in mind was participating in the Lord's Supper in a way that failed to exhibit the unity of the Lord's body, the church. So the examination is with that in mind before it is anything else. Failing to do so, Paul says, would cause one to be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. To, he said it's a sin against the very hope of salvation is what that is saying. It was sinning against the Lord's church, sinning against those for whom Christ shed his blood, gave his body. It was to sin against Christ himself. And Paul goes on to say, because you don't value the Lord's Supper, and this is where... Again, we can get confused. There are many among you who are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, as most of you know, a biblical way of saying who have died. You've got people who are sick, Paul says, people who are weak, in fact, even died. 
because they haven't understood the potency or the vitality that is inerrant in the Lord's table. Paul's aim. Now, this is where we need to make sure we get some good clarity. I don't believe Paul's aim is to create some kind of measuring tool for the individual Corinthian or us to conclude that those who were weak or ill or who had died were the ones who had obviously desecrated the Lord's table. It could mean that but not generally or across the board. Paul refers to the elite. He's not referring to the elite as, they, as the elite would have concluded that they were the ones who were healthy and the poor and the down and out were the ones who were getting weak, sick, and dying. Paul nowhere here indicates any particular group that he's talking to. What he is indicating that he is corporately speaking to everybody. In other words, this is a message, and somehow he has received revelation from God. This is a judgment upon the body of Christ, not just particular groups or individuals, which should put upon us a seriousness of responsibility, amen, amen. to do our part in honoring one another and honoring our Savior with how we live our lives in displaying Jesus. Verse 31. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. I don't want to be condemned with the world. How about you? Paul double backs, if you will, on what he said back in verses 28 and 29. If we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. What they were currently experiencing presently in Corinth was unavoidable. They were already in the midst of it. They were currently abusing the Lord's table. But thankfully, and we all be very thankful for this, that God's Temporary judgments are meant to function as instruments of his discipline. God disciplines those whom he what? Loves. Amen. In other words, if the Corinthians took time to evaluate themselves before the Lord's Supper and change their actions based on that evaluation, then they wouldn't be bringing unwanted circumstances upon themselves. God disciplines his church so that everyone would take notice and make the proper corrections necessary and needed to get in the right place with God. Verse 33, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. In other words, don't be separated. No more cliques. Come together, everybody. Rich and poor and everybody in the middle come together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. <laughs> it's like Paul saying, if hunger is going to be a problem for you when you go to the love feast, eat something before you show up so that there would be something for someone else to enjoy. So there would be something to be shared, okay? 
Anyone who's hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in a judgment. Wow. And when I come, I will give further instruction. To avoid judgment, they needed to do two things. We just looked at it first. Come together. Eat together. No separation. Not, don't leave anybody out. Instead of the rich eating first and eating up everything, they were, they were to include and show proper honor even to the poor and to the, to the lowly. Second, in order to eliminate any justification for not eating together, Paul added that anyone who was hungry, eat at home. Get something in there so your stomach's not growling when you show up and wanting to scarf everything down. The purpose of the community's gathering was to proclaim the gospel, Paul says, the Lord's death, not just to satisfy one's own desire. Paul goes to the core of what it means to be a community of Christ followers. When one member suffers, the idea here is that every member suffers. The suffering that occurs in the community affects everyone. If it does not, basically Paul is saying, if it does not, then you are not a true body of believers. When God has blessed one with the means to help another, it is to empower the entire body of Christ because what is done for one is done for all. And we must keep that in mind. So Jesus says through Paul, this is what I want you to do in remembering me. This is how you honor me. Now, typically, this is where preachers like to finish up with a great story. <laughs> you know, one that pulls on the heartstrings and really brings home what has just been talked about. But this week, I sensed that the Lord was wanting me to encourage you to go out and create your own great God story, a story of compassion, a story of serving in humility, a story of laying your life down for the sake of someone else and displaying God's love even to the unlovely. Let's do that. Agreed? Let's do that. Let's not be guilty of missing the union of communion. And once again, going beyond the actual communion, let's not be guilty of missing the union of communion as we become an extension of it out there. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage in Corinthians. We ask that you minister to our hearts. I am asking God and praying that it would fall in on good ground in every single heart here today. That we would take it to heart, that we would take it seriously, for it is a serious matter. May we rise up and be the kind of church that you went to the cross empowering us to be. Loving, caring, compassionate, 
toward everyone. Displaying you, God. Showing your love. Letting people see Jesus in us. Following your example, the one that you have set for us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.